Welcome back to the program. Throughout time, it seems there are always those that are trying to stop the forces of progress. Fear of the new, fear of technology, has been the stuff of even horror and science fiction and of dystopian visions of the future. Today, too often in the name of good stewardship of our planet, there are those that believe that we need a simpler world, one where we go back to the land, to the farm, to a kind of Thoreau-like localism. The fact is that the world is moving towards cities, technological progress is a force of nature that cannot be stopped, and globalization is the genie that can't be put back into the proverbial bottle. So how do we accept all of this and still see a future that is livable, sustainable, and provides our needs and still protects our food, our air, our water, and our climate? The answer lies in technology itself. As our guest Robert Bryce says, smaller, faster, lighter, denser, cheaper. Robert Bryce is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He's the author of four previous books, including most recently Power Hungry, The Myths of Green Energy. It is my pleasure to welcome Robert Bryce back to this program to talk about his newest work, Smaller, Faster, Lighter, Denser, Cheaper, How Innovation Keeps Proving the Catastrophists Wrong. Robert Bryce, thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad to be with you, Jeff. Thanks. Great to have you here. One of the things that I think we lose sight of sometimes in all the talk about what's wrong with technology and all the things of the, all the talk about what's wrong with the world is that technology, to a very real extent, has made the world a better place in so many ways. Well, yes, there's just no, absolutely no question about it. I've, since the book, uh, I finished the manuscript on the book, and it went to the printer, and, and that was in oh, January, where I you know, had the last touch on it. And I've, Since then, I've been going back and looking at uh, examples of what are, what are proof positive that things have improved, that living standards around the world are, are improving uh, more, that we're living freer, healthier lives than ever. Look at literacy rates. In 1950, a little more than half of the adults globally, about 55, 56%, were literate. Today, that figure is about 90%. A century ago, very few women anywhere had the right to vote. Today, with the exception of Saudi Arabia and some you know, prominent Islamic countries, women are allowed to vote pretty much in every country in the world. In the 2012 Summer Olympic Games, for the first time, all the teams participating in the games had women participating on their teams. It, 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 by all these metrics, you look at, at rising incomes among the very poor, at literacy rates, at disease rates, death rates, all of these things. It, it is remarkable the progress we've made, and yet we just hear the drumbeat of fear of, of, uh, on the news. You know, if it bleeds, it leads. Why do you think that is? More than if it bleeds, it leads. What Do you think that it is the fear of technology, the fear of the new, the fear of the future that drives all this negativity? You know, Jeff, we've had this dystopian view of the future for centuries. You look back in time at our literature, at our, our popular movies, it is remarkable to see the catalog and again this is something that since the book you know the book was published last tuesday and you know it was at the printer you know and so on for a couple of months but i've gone back and looked gulliver's travels 1726 by jonathan swift is considered the first of the dystopian novels well since then fast forward now brave new world 1932 then look at the movies Planet of the Apes, 1968 rollerball 1975 blade runner 1982 Wally, 2008, even the new Lego movie in 2014, 
all of these are and common have this dystopian view of the future uh, poisoned earth poisoned political system desperate people this is part of our, our ordinary existence in popular culture, that we're headed toward disaster and, and, and we have to be prepared for it. Talk a little bit about the areas that you specifically delineate in the book, in smaller, faster, lighter, denser, cheaper, where in fact we have made progress and where we continue to make progress. I have a piece that's published today on Inside Sources, in fact, where I write about one of the themes or one of the companies that I profile in the book, which is Ford Motor Company. Look at, at Alan Mullaly is, is retiring July 1st, is well known now. He's been one of the most successful CEOs in modern American industrial history. Turned Ford around from, you know, avoiding bankruptcy and when he took over in 2006, and then we had the 2008, you know, crash and so on. Today, Ford is one of the most competitive, one, most admired auto companies in the world. Okay, so all of that is we take for granted or we accept as common wisdom. Well, what is the product that, that I think defines Malaley's tenure at Ford more than perhaps any other? The one-liter EcoBoost engine. It's a three-cylinder, one-liter engine that produces 16 times as much power measured in power density, that is in watts per liter of displacement, as the engine that was in the Model T. It's a perfect example of smaller, faster, lighter, denser, cheaper. Here is an engine that's not only 16 times more power dense than the engine that was in the Model T, it's three times as efficient. I mean, it's just a, a marvel of engineering and ingenuity. And this is something, why did Ford do it? Because they wanted to stay in business, because they, they like to, you know, they have a lot of employees, and they, they looked forward, and Malaley looked forward and said, if we're going to stay in business, we need to do things better. We need to do more with less. We need to smaller, faster, lighter, denser, cheaper engines, and they pursued it re relentlessly, and now they're a, a world-leading company. One of the areas that you also talk about is the energy sector and what's happening there. And, and a classic example, and, and you see today natural gas production in the U.S. is up some 41% over the levels that uh, we had in 2005. That was the year that Lee Raymond, who was then the CEO and chairman of ExxonMobil, said North, uh, natural gas production in North America has peaked. There's no more natural gas to be found here. We're going to have to build the, uh, you know, we need the Alaska gas pipeline, et cetera. And today the U.S. Is, is producing more natural gas than anyone ever thought possible. Why? Because of ongoing innovation in the oil and gas sector. There's this, this mistaken belief that, innovation is only going to happen in wind and solar and the political darlings of the moment. Well, it's just simply not true. What we've seen in the oil and gas sector in the last 10 years has been a phenomenal, and particularly I would say even in the last six, phenomenal example of the push towards smaller, faster, lighter, denser, cheaper with better drill rigs, better drill bits, better seismic data. Uh, uh, all of these things combined are unlocking huge quantities of oil and gas that are now making the U.S. one of the most attractive places in the world for uh, foreign capital to come to invest and build new industrial plants. And yet there are naysayers even to those things. And Well, of course, and there are always going to be naysayers. There are the this view that we need to go back to the past, again, is not new. I, I gave you the kind of the mm -hmm. rundown of the, the dystopian literature and dystopian movies. Well, where do, what's the, the corollary where the, the, the parallel process has been what we see in the, the, the myth that we've fallen from grace? The, it goes back even to the Garden of Eden. But from the Garden of Eden and the Book of Genesis, we go to Rousseau and the idea of the noble savage, to Thoreau a century later. Fast forward then to Rachel Carson, to, to Edward Abbey, to today, 
Bill McKibben and Naomi Klein, all making the same claim that we have to go back to nature. We're using too much energy. We're doing too much of everything. We have to go back to the past. And, and this idea that we're somehow going to live on, you know, 40 acres and a mule or green acres, and it, 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 uh, it is an old notion, but it is continually fashionable, it seems. If you look at it from a historical perspective, we never go back. That There is this ongoing march forward in terms of human progress and technological progress. Absolutely. Look at the uh, the smartphone I carry in my pocket. It has 250,000 times as much digital storage capacity as the computer that went to the moon on board Apollo 11. The, 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 the progress that we're making uh, continually in all, on all fronts is so remarkable. And we, as on our day-to-day basis, think, well, of course, I can... Uh, I can just talk for free on my phone to my, you know, my friend in Europe. Well, <laughs> hello. Thirty years ago, you'd be paying, you know, dollars a minute to talk to anyone. And not only can you—I I speak from experience here because my daughter was just in Europe and she was there for several months. We were talking on Skype and having and and FaceTime on, you know, and and I'm I'm doing a video teleconference call and it's free. I mean, it's just, it's a remarkable, uh, a remarkable technology that it, it, a few, you know, decades ago would have left us all gobsmacked. And today we say, well, of course we can do that. <laughs> there is the sense that none of this comes without a price. There's this feeling that people have that somehow because we have this technology, because we have these abilities, because of modernity in so many respects, that somehow there's going to come a time when we have to pay for all of this. And and I, I will fully grant, and I do in the book, that innovation is not always positive. Innovation gave us penicillin. It also gave us the AK-47 and landmines. And so there's no question that we are blundering forward in some cases. As I say in the conclusion of the book, parts of paradise will be paved. Parts of paradise have already been paved. But that is what... It, you know we're humans we're going to make mistakes but what the, the the key point in the book is that we have to believe in technology continue investing in in technology to and we have to believe in technology we can't shy away from for instance nuclear energy i i write a lot about climate change in the book where i say Look, you know, i'm an agnostic tell me co2 is good tell me it's bad i'm i'm bored with the i'm bored with the tribalism what I, what I propose is if we're serious about uh, CO2 emissions and reducing them, we need to embrace natural gas and nuclear because they're the low-carbon alternatives to coal. Well, if you look, though, at what the leading environmental groups are saying, including the Sierra Club, including 350.org and Bill McKibben and, and, and natural, natural Resources Defense Council, Greenpeace, they're uniformly opposed to natural gas. They're uniformly opposed to nuclear so they're opposed to the very technologies that are the way forward if they're serious about climate change. But I think that their opposition in itself dis- uh, re- reveals that they're really not serious about climate change. And instead, the agenda is, I think, more broadly, one of energy poverty and a kind of a go-back-to-nature kind of ideal that I think is really, truly uh, uh, silly in, in its uh, most fundamental basis. Talk a little bit about where you think this continues to go forward in terms of smaller, faster, lighter, denser, cheaper, and where are the areas we should be looking at to make progress in the next 10, 15 years? Clearly, we're going to continue to see progress uh, in the energy sector, and that's an area that I follow pretty closely. 
One of the interesting companies that I write about in the book is Aquion Energy, a company based in Pittsburgh that's making grid-level, grid-scale batteries using saltwater as their electrolyte. It's a fascinating technology. The, the, from the beginning, the idea was that they were going to make cheaper batteries and cheaper, very durable, very stable batteries. So energy storage, and particularly electricity storage, has always been one of the killer apps in the, elect- in the, in the energy field. Um, uh, turning natural gas into liquids is another killer app, by the way. But nevertheless, so the energy field, we're clearly going to see continuing innovation because the potential uh, payoffs are so enormous. But I'm also very bullish on what we're seeing in the medical field. I write in the book about a company called Scanadu. They, they're uh, selling now, uh, or rather they're coming to market with a, a product called the Scanadu Scout, which allows a, a medical practitioner or even just an ordinary person to, within a few seconds, by using a device that they just uh, scan across your forehead, they get your blood pressure your, and effectively all of your vital signs in just a matter of seconds. And the, and the data is then fed into your, your smartphone. I mean, it's almost a magical technology. In fact, it's very similar to what uh, the tricorder device that uh, was used on Star Trek. It's really that kind of, of almost science fiction kind of uh, progress. Another area that you touch on in the book that we're just now really beginning to see the kind of creative destruction we've seen in some other areas is education. And, and it's fascinating. And this is another one uh, area where I, I, I see this happening with my own children. I have a teenager who's 14, and the, the curriculum that he's using for mathematics is Khan Academy. It's a massively open online course, um, or MOOC, as the, as the, as the, the acronym and it is a remarkable, remarkable system. And he's learning all levels of mathematics. It tracks his progress. It tracks how many minutes he's working at it. And he can see this very uh, concrete progress. And yes, it's it's on the computer screen. And he needs a pencil and he needs a paper, you know, to, to work out some of his calculations and so on. But compared to the traditional method of learning mathematics where it's one teacher and here's your textbook and the teacher gives a lecture and here he can go to any number of lectures work on the problems at home and then go to school and work with his colleagues to learn the problems or or thing you know figure out the things that he couldn't understand before it con Saul Khan's great uh, I mean brilliant insight was that he, in fact, flipped the entire educational model around mathematics to one that was teacher-centric alone at the school to one that is uh, student-centric, I think, at home, and then going back to school to go to the teacher and say, well, look, I have a problem with this part right here. Can you help me? So that the teacher then in the school becomes more the mentor to all of the students in the classroom, helping them work out the problems that they couldn't solve on their own with the lectures and other uh, materials that are available online. It's a, it's a remarkable and, and extremely powerful idea. Do you have a sense that much of the, the pushback to so many different areas of this kind of change is in some way slowing down the change itself? Geez, that's a, that's a good question, Jeff. I, I mean, yes, I think we can see that if we look at in the energy field, right? There's this um, romantic notion about wind and solar, and, and, and therefore we need to subsidize them heavily because they're renewable, and therefore if they're renewable, they must be good. Um, so, yes, we see that, and, and I think in, in a lot of the anti-nuclear sentiment and, and rhetoric, this, uh, 
uh, is is slowing down progress. But all of that said, I, as I say in the book, this this trend towards smaller, faster, lighter, denser, cheaper is inexorable. It just can't be stopped because there are so many people around the world who are just not willing to sit in the dark. They're just not willing to freeze to death. They're going to innovate their way forward, and uh, it's going to happen. And 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 it it requires. Uh, optimism it requires risk taking and it requires just a i think a, a world view that is 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 one of um uh, of a humanist uh, attitude instead of saying oh we have to save the planet the planet's going to be fine it's the humans we got to worry about more one of the things that's so interesting you talk about around the world is that we're seeing so much of this progress impacting the developing world at this point it is remarkable and in fact i've just have been. I'm, I'm doing a, 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 a Wired.com is going to run an excerpt from my book, and uh, they chose uh, interestingly this chapter that I did on digital money and mobile payments, and where mobile payments are happening and the, the acceptance of mobile payments is happening most quickly is in Africa. Mobile payments are, is, involves the ability to use your phone, your your mobile phone, your smartphone to to buy things and to pay pay the doctor, pay the school bill, pay the electric bill, so that currency goes away. In fact, currency just loses digits on your phone. And it's a remarkable development, but it's lighter, cheaper money so that people can then engage in in commerce much more easily, reduces the friction in commerce. But yes, it's incredibly an opportune idea for the developing world where transporting currency, where even carrying currency of any kind can be a problem, especially if it's involving large amounts. Um, So allowing the digitization of money and allowing currency paper currency and 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 coins to go away and replacing it with digits on a smartphone which nearly everyone now in the world has is a major opportunity for the developing world you were talking about solar before in the context of energy solar is one of the areas where we're seeing real progress from technological development and costs coming down substantially absolutely and i and i'm bullish on solar i think that what we've seen in the in the cost of solar has in, in decline has been remarkable. In the 1980s, uh, one watt of photovoltaic capacity cost over twenty dollars. Today, it's less than a buck, um, and so that massive decline in costs. Uh, it would go back to the developing world for rural villages, for uh, developing countries where they don't have an active grid, for neighborhoods or even for homeowners to, you know, put up a few solar panels and have a small battery that and a few uh, efficient lights that allows their children to read at night. That's a revolution in living standards. I mean, a true revolution in living standards. So this lower cost uh, deployment of solar, I think, is extraordinarily promising and one that uh, I think is going to benefit people all over the world. No question about it. What negative reaction, negative feedback have you gotten even in the limited time the book's been out? You know, not too much overly negative. I did have a question, though. I did a, a, a radio interview with a, well, a fairly well-known national radio personality and I'll not offer his name here but <laughs> I was I, I was talking to him it was in New York and he said we were talking about coal because I talk about the coal business and the rise of coal globally and how it, it, the use of coal is is dramatically increasing all, all over the world it's been the fastest growing form of energy since 1973 it's the fastest growing form of energy in absolute terms by far especially over the last decade and 
I just made the point, as I do in the book, that in the developing world, this use of coal is going to continue dramatically. I mean, because this is the, the it's low cost, not controlled by any OPEC or affected by any OPEC-like entities, widely dispersed geographically, et cetera. And he said, well, you're just advocating some kind of environmental colonialism. Well, <laughs> I, was just, I was gobsmacked. I said, what? I said, I <laughs> environmental colonialism? I said, you know, it's the, 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 the big green groups that are trying to prevent the developing world from using coal. That's environmental colonialism. And, and, and I'm, what I'm advocating is cheap, abundant, reliable energy. And if they're going to use coal, they're going to do it the way we did it here in the U.S. And, and yet we have this idea we have to prevent them from following our, in our footsteps. I, I just think that's a, uh, that is a, uh, an indefensible position. Robert Bryce. The book is Smaller, Faster, Lighter, Denser, Cheaper, How Innovation Keeps Proving the Catastrophist Wrong. Robert, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks a million, Jeff. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 